I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today, a first on How Do We Fix It? A show about innovation and our first interview with a sitting member of the UK House of Lords. Not an institution normally associated with cutting-edge innovation. In this case, <laughs> exactly. In this case, uh, it's different. Our guest is Matt Ridley, author of the book How Innovation Works. Trial and error is the secret source of innovation. Again and again, if you talk to great innovators, they stress the importance of trial and error. And swinging and missing is just as important as swinging and hitting. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I gather it's a baseball metaphor. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Nothing matters much more right now than the search, or perhaps it's a scramble, for a reliable vaccine that would work against coronavirus. But that breakthrough may not come from a single source or even one team of scientists. On this show, we look at innovation, which might be the most important phenomenon of the modern world. But, you know, innovation also causes a lot of disruption, which means there's a lot of resistance to it as well. We explore today with Matt Ridley, author of the best-selling new book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt Ridley is a British journalist and businessman, well-known for his writings on science, the environment, and economics. Viscount Ridley has been a conservative member of the UK's House of Lords since 2013. He joins us from his home in Northumberland, England. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Richard, it's great to be with you on the show. So we often hear that the world is changing faster than ever and that innovation is speeding up. You don't agree, do you? Well, I think in some respects it's true. I mean, clearly, you know, we get a new iPhone every three years or something. So consumer electronics, digital, the digital world is changing very fast. But I'm very struck by how... Uh, if you go back to the 1950s and look at what they expected us to be doing by now, we're missing out on a heck of a lot of innovations that they thought were coming, particularly in transport. Um, they'd had a ferment of change in transport in the 50 years before that with aeroplanes and motor cars and space travel turning up for the first time and things getting faster and faster and faster. Since then, that means the entirety of my life, I was born in the late 1950s, there has been no change in speed at all. I mean, cars are no faster, planes are no faster. The 747, which flies across the Atlantic every day, is 
a plane that entered service in 1969. So there are areas where innovation has hit the buffers. And I complain in my book about the fact that we may be in the middle of a bit of an innovation famine. And that's a problem we need to solve because that's where prosperity comes from. Certainly one area where we saw enormous progress and we need it now is in vaccines. Where are we? What do you foresee for the near future? Well, I, I like you, I'm very struck by the fact that uh, vaccine development is still a very slow business. It's still a very uncertain business. It doesn't have a high success rate. Um, we've never made a vaccine for HIV, for example. Uh, and we don't know if we'll get a vaccine for COVID-19. And if we do, it won't be for another year or so. Um, uh, and that's pretty striking when you think about how fast everything else has changed. And also when you think about the fact that in the 1930s, two rather talented women in their spare time came up with the first effective vaccine against whooping cough and did so in four years flat. So uh, I think we do, we are improving the way in which we look for vaccines. But there's a problem here, which is that pharmaceutical companies have not been investing in it because they can't make money out of vaccines because if a vaccine works, it does itself out of business quite quickly. Um, so it needs to be from a different direction. And some of the work that the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust and others have been doing to incentivize vaccine developers to get better and more general and more prepared for the next epidemic is good work. But it's come too late. It should have started 20 years ago, and it probably should have been started by the World Health Organization. So that's one area that I think we haven't been fast enough in. And another is diagnostics. You know, diagnostic tests to detect, detect the presence of a virus um, are exactly the kind of things that would have benefited us if we'd developed more of them. Why haven't we developed more of them? Partly because of regulation. It takes five or six years to develop a, a diagnostic test uh, and get approval for it. We really like guests who admit that in the past they were wrong and they changed their mind. Uh, you have said that you were wrong in underestimating the, the, the possibility that this pandemic could really happen and, and be as incredibly disruptive as it has been. Yes, uh, I, I, I was wrong. Um, Ironically, I was less wrong 20 years ago than I am today because I wrote a book in 1999 on the future of disease in the 21st century in which I said we may get a pandemic and if we do, it'll be an insect, uh, sorry, not an insect, but a bat-borne virus because that's where it looks like most of our emerging viruses are coming from. And it'll be a virus, not a bacterium. And bats live in these huge colonies and do a lot of vocalizing. So they have a lot of respiratory viruses that are ideal for us. So that's where we need to be careful. But then 10 years later, with SARS having failed to produce a pandemic and swine flu and bird flu having repeatedly failed, led me to become more complacent and to think actually we're exaggerating that threat as we're exaggerating a lot of other threats. Um, uh, and uh, I was wrong. Uh, I mean, I think this is a serious problem. I've described it as a wolf at the door. We've cried wolf about viruses before. This time the wolf did show up. Um, uh, it's not as bad as it could be. I mean, it's not a very lethal disease. It's probably not much more lethal than flu, uh, but it does seem to have a particular tendency to to get into hospitals and kill old people at an alarming rate. And it does have a, a rather difficult to control habit of spreading from people who, who aren't showing symptoms. You know, most of us were raised on stories of brave inventors toiling in their laboratories late at night. 
But you say there's a difference between invention and innovation. What is it? I think innovation is the taking of an invention and turning it into something practical, affordable, and reliable. And I think that's a lot more hard work than people generally realize. It's a much bigger part of the innovation process than coming up with the original idea itself. I think Thomas Edison put it best. He was really an innovator, not an inventor, although he wouldn't have used that word. Um, because he didn't necessarily come up with the first ideas for most of his things, but he did make the first reliable, affordable, and available products. Uh, he spent uh, a long time trying to find the right material for the light bulb filament, eventually settling on Japanese bamboo after 5,000 different other types of plant. But he said invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And to some extent, I'm trying to rebalance the story away from the inspiration and towards the perspiration. He also said uh, our greatest weakness lies in giving up uh, and that the most certain way to succeed is to always just try one more time. Is failure a vital part of all this? Absolutely. A trial and error is the secret source of innovation. Again and again, if you talk to great innovators, they stress the importance of trial and error. And swinging and missing is just as important as swinging and hitting. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I gather it's a baseball <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I think I can work out what it means. Um, so, you know, if you take someone like Jeff Bezos, who is a fairly similar figure in some ways to Thomas Edison today, because he's a very successful innovator, um, he says much the same thing. He talks about the importance of doing a lot and getting a lot wrong in order to find out what to do that's right. And if you, you can tell the story of Amazon as a story of, you know, failure after failure. They got into the wrong businesses. They invested in the wrong dot-coms. They went down the wrong product alleys. But every now and then they got just enough right to keep going, and eventually they scooped the pool. In your book, you say that you want to save innovation. What do you want to save it from? <laughs> I want to save it from the incumbent vested interests in big companies that stop it, the regulators and uh, officials in big governments that stop it, um, and the, uh, the fear mongers among activist groups who spread fear about the new and therefore try to stop it. And I think that's a mistake. I think there are wonderful uh, improvements to our lives and to the environment out there if we can do more innovation. Some of your critics might say, oh, there's just another right-winger or conservative saying all we need to do is sweep away regulations and have smaller government. But your argument is, is much more nuanced than that, isn't it? It's, it's also about the damage that's wrought by uh, large institutions that include uh, cr crony capitalism. Uh, yes, I, I think this isn't a conservative argument at all. It's an argument for uh, liberal uh, change. And uh, on the whole, conservatives are people with a small c, are, are people who don't want things to change. Um, and you're absolutely right that I think j just as big an enemy uh, of uh, government as government regulation uh, is big corporations trying to build barriers and trying to stop innovation happening. There's some very striking examples where the two work hand in hand. So um, the big manufacturers of vacuum cleaners ganged up to lobby the European Commission 
to bring in new rules about the testing of vacuum cleaners so that they didn't have to be tested with dust in them, unlike on every other continent. Um, and this was because they saw an insurgent uh, uh, threat from a James Dyson, the inventor of the Dyson bagless vacuum cleaner, which didn't need to increase its power usage when it got half filled with dust. Um, and it took a, a, a five-year battle in the courts for him to get these regulations, which had been lobbied for by big companies, struck down. Very striking example of crony capitalism at work. One area that has real implications for the planet, and as longtime listeners of this podcast know, it's a, a particular area of interest of mine, is nuclear power, where you you talk about how some of the activist groups have focused on nuclear power as if it's uniquely dangerous and you know beyond consideration, at the same time that they argue that we need to reduce our carbon emissions down to zero. What's your take? Well, I think there is only one zero carbon technology available at the moment that can possibly power our civilization. Uh, the renewables uh, are mostly far too hungry in terms of their need for land, for resources, for inputs, uh, and indeed for energy inputs. They, they don't give out that much energy compared to what goes into them uh, to make it worthwhile. By, by contrast, nuclear can have an extremely small footprint in terms of the amount of land and materials it needs, and it can put out a lot of low carbon power. The problem with nuclear, though, is not just that the environmental movement uh, um, earned its spurs by opposing nuclear and can't seem to get off that bandwagon, even though it's now more concerned about carbon dioxide. The problem, uh, as I see it, is that um, the regulations we've put in place to make nuclear as safe as possible have created an enormous barrier to innovation in nuclear and have actually made it more dangerous as a result. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. The Fukushima plant was a very old plant that should have closed before 2011 when it exploded. Uh, and one of the reasons it, it went wrong was because it had pumps in its basement and these got flooded and so they weren't able to pump water when, when the flooding happened. And uh, that plant would have been closed if newer versions of nuclear technology had come along. Um, we can't develop newer versions of technology, of nuclear technology, because it takes... 10 years and $100 million to get approval for a new design of nuclear power. And that means that you, da you daren't, and that cuts nuclear power off from the, the, the trial and error process that you need to do innovation, in my view. It's How Do We Fix It? And we're speaking with Matt Ridley about his new book, which is called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast 
and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And we're back with Matt Ridley. I'm intrigued by the second half of your book's title. Why do you say that innovation flourishes in freedom? If you look at uh, what innovators do, they do trial and error, they do, uh, um, uh, they share and collaborate ideas, they bring technologies together and make them have baby ideas and all that. But the one thing they need for that to happen is freedom, the freedom to experiment, the freedom to be wrong, the freedom to try something else, the freedom to change direction, the freedom to invest where they think they, they should. Um, it doesn't work to plan it in advance, and it doesn't work to tell it what it can't do and what it can do. Um, uh, and this is shown up in the history of innovation, that unfree regimes produce too little innovation. And so what needs to happen is a liberation of innovators and entrepreneurs to go out there and uh, uh, try different things without being told what to do. And that's a surprisingly rare thing in history. It hasn't been allowed in many places and at many times. And it needs, it needs the freedom to emigrate as well. Uh, so an awful lot of uh, inventors and innovators moved from one place to another till they found a congenial regime in which to do their work. People like Gutenberg, uh, the inventor of printing, and people like Elon Musk, who only a couple of weeks ago was threatening to leave California for Texas where because he thought he might find a more congenial regime there. So um, th all these freedoms are really important for innovation. And it's the one thing that knits all my arguments about innovation together, I think. You know, Elon Musk once told me that what he did, the companies he'd built, he could have only done in the U.S., and that if he'd stayed in South Africa, none of this would have happened. But let's talk about another country that is very much in everyone's mind right now, China. There seems to be a lot of innovation there, but it's certainly not a free country, and in some ways it's verging on becoming an empire. Um, I agree with that, and I think it's a paradox. Uh, I think it's explicable, though, because – uh, it has been relatively free, except in political uh, innovation uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, that is to say, if you are an innovator and you want to build a new factory to build a new device that you've just invented uh, in China, um, then as long as you haven't annoyed the Communist Party and as long as you haven't tried to set up a rival political party, then there's very little to stop you. Um, there are very few of those petty officials and rules and and uh, things that trip up other people in, in Western countries. You know, you don't need to count every bat and newt in the area. You don't need to get lots of local permits, etc. You just go ahead and do it. So in that sense, Chinese entrepreneurs have been free. I think it's ending. I think the Xi uh, regime uh, is increasingly so authoritarian that it will be hard not to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, just as his Ming predecessors did um, five or six hundred years ago. The China example, though, does point to, to a weakness in, in some aspects of freedom. They have a terrible problem with, with air pollution. And then also the uh, uh, we're, we're not certain exactly where the coronavirus came from, but it could have come from a relatively unregulated uh, market for wild animals in Wuhan. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, one of the problems of a communist regime is that it doesn't take into account the needs of 
its citizens for things like clean air or protection from diseases to the same extent as a democracy would do. And that is a huge problem. Uh, I agree. Uh, And I think you know, China will, after this, be the subject of considerable concern in the West about what happens. And what we desperately need is more transparency from the Chinese so we can study this and find out what did happen. You talk about the way that people often fear and fight innovation. And one argument or one concern about innovation is it's going to put everybody out of work. You know, if we have self-driving trucks, we're going to have millions of unemployed truck drivers. People have thought this throughout history, haven't they? Absolutely. I mean, this goes right back to the Luddites of the early 19th century in the UK who went around smashing textile machinery. Uh, And it's wrong. I mean, it's simply not true that innovation and automation destroy jobs net. Of course, they can destroy jobs in one particular sector at any one time. But uh, the net effect is always more employment. You go back to the 1960s, there was a real panic in the United States about the possibility that the rising unemployment figures suggested that automation, the arrival of computers in workplaces, in factories, was going to displace workers and there was going to be nothing for everybody to do. Well, in fact, there are whole professions today, like software engineer, uh, that didn't really exist then and now employ very large numbers of people. So we're actually at a place of relatively high employment, or we were before the current crisis, um, while having more and more automation. I'm really struck by that on a personal level, and and that is my daughter uh, runs a couple of yoga studios. And I've often thought, you know, they didn't exist in anything like the same form or to the same degree uh, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, when when I was a good deal younger. And then also podcasts, you know, this whole new industry that that we're part of just wasn't there before. Are there times and places where uh, there were many more innovations than there are today. Yes, I think there were times and particularly places where that was true. As I see it, innovation flares up like a bushfire in certain places and at certain times. So I can take you to any point in history and say, in my time machine, let's land in the most innovative part in the world where most of the innovation is happening. I mean, if it was in uh, 1800, I'd land somewhere in England. If it was in um, 1500, I'd land somewhere in Italy. Uh, If it was in uh, 1100, I'd land somewhere in uh, China. If it was in 800, I'd land somewhere in Arabia. And of course, if it's uh, 1950, I'd, I'd land in California. You get these critical masses and you get people who are inventing Uh, new kinds of metal, who talk to people who need machines and who talk to people who need more energy. It's, It's as if a rising tide lifts all boats at the same time. And what also gets lifted by the same boat, the boat that also gets lifted by the same tide, I should say, is culture, Uh, that it's these innovative, technologically innovative periods that also develop new forms of painting, new forms of literature, new forms of art. And you say that we need certain conditions to make that happen. You you mentioned freedom in particular. What can we do today to make sure that we're maximizing those conditions? Well, I think what we need to do uh, is to uh, simplify and accelerate the uh, behavior of bureaucrats. That's sort of number one on my agenda, because I think far too many decisions are taken too slowly, and that hurts uh, innovation. Uh, We need to encourage Uh, the cross-fertilization of ideas, and that means relatively free movement of people, but also hugely free movement of 
uh, data and information. We need to put in place decent infrastructure for innovators to work. But apart from that, we need to get out of the way. We shouldn't be in the business of trying to specify which inventions you want an inventor to invent next. It sort of never works if you do that. I'm the liberal on the show. I would also argue that we should have much easier, better access to the Internet, to Wi-Fi, to 5G, uh, for people who currently can't afford it. I completely agree with you. And uh, I, I, in some ways, I'm puzzled that, that 20 years of uh, more and more Internet availability hasn't resulted in an explosion of innovation around the world. Because, you know, somebody in Brazil can have an idea that kind of meshes with an idea someone's had in Shanghai, and the two of them can then talk to someone in San Francisco, and suddenly you've got a new technology being built in a way that would have taken months or weeks uh, a while ago. What's the innovation you think we need most right now? Well, I think right now, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, it's a vaccine. And I would say vaccine development uh, should have been one of our priorities and it should be one of our priorities going forward. I think with a big push, we can uh, accelerate it. Beyond that, uh, it, it, energy R&D itself is probably where we should uh, be most interested because if we can find clean, uh, low-carbon uh, ways of making energy that are affordable and don't take up too much space and don't do too much harm in themselves, then that could be transformative. I mean, suppose fusion were to achieve tomorrow what it has been promising for about 50 years to achieve, and a thing half the size of a room could provide an entire town or city with enough power based on just the fuel would really be derived from water, then suddenly with that much energy, you could do anything. So cheap energy would make all the difference. You've described yourself as an optimist many times. Are you still optimistic? I'm still very optimistic. I wrote The Rational Optimist 10 years ago. At the time, we were in a terrible recession. I was told you can't possibly be optimistic now. And I said, no, I think we will get the show back on the road. Uh, over the next 10 years, every time I've been somewhere, there's been a reason for people to say, you can't possibly still be an optimist now. There's a euro crisis. There's a war in Syria. There's a war in Ukraine, etc., etc. There's currently a pandemic. It will have bad effects. There's no question about it. It will have terrible economic consequences as well as medical ones. But nobody said it was going to be plain sailing. And over the last 10 years, we have seen extraordinary advances in the quality of life of people around the world, particularly the poorest people. It has been a remarkable decade for Africa, the poorest continent, for example. The average income of the average Ethiopian has doubled in this decade. That's extraordinary. And it's still happening. And it's happening despite the pandemic. So I think it will resume. Matt Ridley, thank you very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much, Richard and Jim, for having me on the show. So, Richard, you know, I've always been interested in or lately I've been interested in things we're doing during this pandemic lockdown and taking advantage of. And one thing that I found very encouraging is all the music that the artists I like are streaming online. You know, this normally is this time when everybody's out at their festivals and giving performances, including my old band would have been doing that at this time of year. So it's kind of sad to see everybody stuck at home. 
but they're making up for it with these wonderful, intimate shows. There's one artist in East Nashville, singer-songwriter like named Todd Snyder, who does a great Sunday afternoon show. Uh, but lots of, you know, much more famous artists, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, The Roots, Miley Cyrus, all these different people are doing streaming shows. And it's a nice way to connect and feel not quite so isolated. Another show I've been listening to is by Yo-Yo Ma. He's also been uh, doing these impromptu concerts. It's always going the highbrow route, Richard. <laughs> exactly. And just a couple of thoughts now on the interview we did with, with Matt Ridley, Jim. One of the points he made that I really like is that it doesn't work for a government to just dictate what technologies need to be developed. Innovation is more organic than that. And we're seeing a great example of that with the SpaceX shot. The first time that a privately built spacecraft has carried astronauts into space and the first time that NASA has used a private space company to carry NASA astronauts who are now happily ensconced at the International Space Station, traditionally NASA used to dictate the technology it wanted. Then it would hire companies like Boeing and Lockheed to build it. Instead, what they, uh, years ago, almost nine years ago, NASA said, you know, we're not going to dictate the technology. We're just going to pay for cargo to be delivered to space. You guys can figure out how you want to build it. Well, Elon Musk and SpaceX were one of the companies that did that. They not only did they build some beautiful rockets, which are now good enough to carry people, but they cut the cost of delivering cargo and people into space by an order of magnitude. And why is this a particularly important moment right now in the history of space exploration? Because we're going to be able to afford to go to space again. Boy, we'll have to do another show on space. I'm sure that's coming up any day now. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We're a podcast production firm. Also, we do media training. Uh, check us out at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.